Welcome back to Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse. I'm Jesse, and today Josh is not with me. I know it's sad. It is incredibly upsetting. But you know what's crazy? For the last 70 odd weeks, Josh and I, rain or shine, have been together for original content where it's just us talking together or for an interview. And this is the first time in those 70 weeks where we are not together. Uh, Josh wanted to take a little break, and we also wanted to just do something a little bit different. It's kind of difficult when you've been doing a podcast for 70-odd weeks, and every single week has been the same schedule, and we're just so thankful for those of you who have stuck with us. But we have been talking recently about changing a few things up and shaking up the format, and so there are a whole bunch of stuff in our brains that we've been thinking about and we've been talking through. If you have any suggestions about some of the ways that maybe we could change, head over to our Facebook group and um, send us a few suggestions because we don't want to get stale. We don't want to just do the same thing over and over and over again, hoping that'll work because we know that that is never going to happen. What worked today may not necessarily work tomorrow. We're so aware of that. But today we are doing something different. As I mentioned, I am going to be on my own. And I should make a quick note, just to be super clear, this episode is going to be different. I'm experimenting with a a few new things. It's going to be a little bit wacky, so bear with me. Let me know what your thoughts are. I am going to be talking about something which really has impacted me in a meaningful way. Um, More more specifically, a man uh, who has impacted me in a in a very, very positive way. I'm sure many of you are, in some small part at least, aware of Dr. Jordan Peterson. But for those who aren't, he is a clinical psychologist from Canada uh, at the University of Toronto. He has written uh, many works over the years, including 1999's uh, Maps of Meaning, which is sort of like his seminal work. And in 2018, he wrote, uh, published 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, which is kind of his most accessible um, piece. He's also really well known for uh, his video in 2016 where he criticized Canada's uh, Bill C-16, which would, in his opinion, infringe on basic human rights such as free speech. Uh, he's also really well known for a series of biblical lectures that he delivered um, a few years ago, which is where I got my start, as I mentioned later on in the episode. And um, his, his work has just really resonated with a lot of people over many, many years. I have listened or watched all of Jordan's um, Genesis lectures and it's something, he's, he's just a figure which has really just burned himself into the impression of my mind, especially as I, as I think about psychology and theology, being a pastor. And he's just, he's a really, really, really interesting interesting figure. But before I get into Jordan, I'd just like to talk about myths. One of the things that I was brought up in, one of the cultures that I was brought up in as a Christian, was around the literalist way to read the Bible. 
Uh, you could also take this as a fundamentalist position. Um, the divine uh, inspiration, the divine sort of dictation method of interpreting the Bible, the idea that the Bible was something which God literally dictated from heaven and the writer was merely a conduit through which God was working to dictate the words of the Bible and that the words of the Bible were literally what God had in mind. That is the culture that that I grew up in and I know that's the culture that many Christians have been brought up in. The idea that the Bible is something sacred and precious because it's literally God's word. Not just God's word, W, capital W, but it's also God's words, if that makes sense. That God literally breathed the words onto the page as we see them today. And, and when I was a kid, especially growing up and, you know, my parents and, and the pastors and the church leaders around me, they had a vested interest and rightly so in wanting to inspire confidence in the Bible and in Christianity. And so the way that they often did that is they opened the Bible to Daniel chapter 2. And for those of you who don't know Daniel chapter 2, it's a, famous, it's a famous story of Daniel, who's this captive in Babylon alongside his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is, is having some issues. He's having this dream, which is incredibly troubling, but the most troubling part is he can't remember what the dream is. It's like when you wake up from a nightmare and you, you can't remember exactly what happened to the nightmare. All you can remember is how it made you feel. And this is what's happening to the king. And so the king sends for the usual, the magicians and the interpreters and the mystic men. And he asks them to, number one, tell him what the dream was about. And number two, interpret said dream. And surprise, surprise, they can't do either because how can you remember a dream that somebody else can't even remember? And Nebuchadnezzar is furious. And he threatens to kill all of his wise men and advisors and all the people who are mystics in his city. And Daniel gets word of this. And he prays to God and asks God to reveal the dream to him. And God does. And so Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar like a hero. He shows up at the nick of time, just as the executioner's axe is about to swing and chop off the head of the first mystic man. Not really, but you, you can kind of add in some of those dramatic effects. And he says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, God on high, the only God, the one true God, he's revealed the dream to me. And here's what it is. And Daniel lays out this vision of a, a statue with uh, all of its parts being made up by a variety of different metals from gold to silver to bronze to um, iron and clay eventually at the feet. And, and, and Daniel says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head, the head of gold. But after you, there's going to be another empire. And after that empire is going to be another empire. And after that empire is going to be another empire. And eventually, all the empires will fall and nothing will be able to take their place. There will be a broken up, misshapen, ununified set of kingdoms, all trying to unify, but never quite getting there, as signified by the iron and clay. Iron and clay, obviously can't mix. And so as I was uh, being brought up as a kid, these stories 
were laid out in these charts. And for those of you who remember the charts and the, you know, the identification, okay, you have Babylon, which was followed by Persia, Medo-Persia, which was followed by Greece, which was followed by Rome, which was followed by Europe. And then, you know, everybody tried to unify Europe. You have the European Union, you have the UN, you have all these attempts to unify and make Europe a, a superpower, a one, a one continent empire, and it never quite happens. And at the end, of course, the dream, um, a, a, a stone is cut out of heaven, which nobody sees how it's cut out. And it's, and it's catapulted to earth and it smashes the statue. And, and that's when Jesus comes back, is what I was told. Um, Jesus, which will destroy all earthly kingdoms and who will bring an end to man-made empires and who will establish his own kingdom of justice and righteousness and we can look forward to that. Now, I don't, I don't deny any of that. It was what I was brought up with. It's what I'm familiar with. And I don't disagree with some of the interpretations. We as Adventists are typically historicists, by which I mean, when we look at scripture and when we look at prophecy, what we try to do is we try to find a historical precedent to be able to compare to scripture, to be able to explain scripture, essentially. And that's what we try to do. And that is what has worked for us, it seems, over the past 150 years. And Adventists as themselves aren't the only ones who have this literalist interpretation. Uh, in fact, there are many religions, many Christian religions or pseudo-Christian religions that have an uh, sort of literalist way of interpreting the Bible, of comparing current day events or historical events to the words of scripture, especially prophecy, which is often so murky and, and confusing. And we aren't the only ones who have said Jesus is coming back on this date. We aren't the only ones who have made bold predictions about what the mark of the beast is or how a political leader with a, a religious entity, which is usually the Catholic Church, is fulfilling prophecy. And we've hung our hat on this idea that we can prove the Bible is true from history. And we can prove that these, these, these things happened because of what we see in history. The other thing which I'm noticing more and more, especially in the Adventist world, is the emphasis or the re-emphasis on the literal six-day creation account about dinosaurs, the flood, that these events were literal events that happened just as the, as the Bible described them. And that if we interpret it any other way, well, that's, that's not okay. And so we've built in some ways this, this monument, this house of cards, which it all hinges on this incredibly delicate balance of facts and figures of, of dates and interpretations. It all kind of works because it's all held together but if you take one card out, it all will come tumbling down. In fact, I, I've often had discussions with people about the literalist interpretation of the Bible, especially as it relates to things like the flood, about the creation account, um, the Tower of Babel, or a more appropriate is the Tower of Babylon. And I've often had discussions with people about these things. And, and, and when it comes to, well, maybe, maybe these things weren't literal, just as a, a way of entertaining the thought, often that's met by, well, if, it's, if, it, if one of these things isn't true, then it's not all true. It's an all or nothing way of looking at things. We've 
created, in some ways, Frankenstein's monster. We've created this house of cards where we've, we've tried so hard to inspire confidence into people that if one little part of it gets dislodged, the entire house comes tumbling down. And my question is not, well, did creation literally happen? Did the flood really happen? Did the Tower of Babel really happen? My question is not that. My question is, what do we hang our hat on? What, what's the foundation of our faith? And we've talked about that. Josh and I have talked about this many times on the podcast. And we've come back to time and time again that the foundation of our faith has to be, must be, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything else comes out of that. The foundation of our faith cannot be a literal six-day creation. The foundation of our faith cannot be a worldwide literal flood. And when we say that, we aren't saying that we don't believe, or I'm not saying that I don't believe those things literally happened. But coming back to Jordan Peterson and, and coming back to what I want to talk about today, I am no longer, and this is going to sound something heretical to some people, I am no longer so invested in these stories that if they literally didn't happen, I'm going to lose my faith. Now, I I want us to take that into context and I'm going to come back to it a little bit later on. But what I want to talk about before we talk about Jordan Peterson is the definition of a myth. And this might be triggering to some people, but just go with me on this and, and hopefully we'll arrive at a really good conclusion. The definition of a myth, and in many ways, there are many diff- definitions, but one of the definitions that I really like is that a myth is is a story that's so outlandish that it's true on every level except the literal. So, a myth is a story which is true on every level except the literal. Now, keep that in your mind. And we're going to go to Jordan Peterson. Now, I was first introduced to Jordan Peterson when a friend of mine sent me this YouTube video saying, hey, listen to this guy, this psychologist. He sounds like Kermit the Frog. And I listened to, to I, I watched his video and I was, yeah, I, I agree. I laughed. I was like, yeah, this guy does sound like Kermit the Frog. This is so crazy. But then I kept watching this video and I, I still remember the first time I saw Jordan Peterson, I was... I was going out to pizza or something. I was going to a restaurant with my wife and I got this Facebook message from this guy saying, ha this guy sounds like Kermit the Frog. And I remember sitting on my couch waiting for my wife to finish getting ready and I was watching it. And you know how when you're waiting, you're just flicking through your phone and you're just going to this and going to that. I was transfixed. Even though he sounded like Kermit the Frog and I thought that was hilarious. I'd never heard somebody speaking like that, like actually without putting on a voice. There was something about what he said that made me want to keep watching his videos. And so I did. Um, And I kept watching these videos about responsibility and about building a life worth living. And this is back in 2016, 2017, I believe. And, And I kept watching these videos and I kept on getting just hooked on these ideas. They were... Many of them, not new ideas. They were ideas that I'd heard before, but I'd never quite heard them being put the way that that he presented them. And eventually, as I delved deeper into who is this 
Jordan Peterson guy, this this old fellow, this old Canadian psychologist, um, giving these lectures halfway around the world. I mean, why why is he blowing up so much? And this is before his his rise in 2016. Um, this is just before. I I was confused, but I was also transfixed, as I said. And eventually, I discovered that he had started to give these biblical lectures starting in Genesis. And his, his audacious claim was, I'm going to try and get through the whole Bible. And he did like 17 in Genesis. And I was like, yeah, nah, this is not going to happen. But as I started to listen and started to watch on YouTube and listen through the podcasting to these lectures in Genesis, my interest just skyrocketed. Because here I am, a young pastor just out of out of Avondale, just out of seminary, and I'm learning about the world, and I'm learning about ministry, and I'm learning about theology. I thought that I knew everything. I thought that my degree had set me up to, to know everything that I needed to know about ministry and theology. Little did I know that my education was just about to start. And so I started to listen to these Genesis lectures, and and I I was just so, so transfixed. I keep on saying that, but it's just, that's the best way to describe the way that I was reacting to, to these lectures. And, and I, I, I think the reason why I was so interested and I was so hooked on these lectures, especially was because I had never heard anybody critique or interpret the Bible especially Genesis, which is such a fundamental book to Christians and to Jews, you know. I'd never heard anybody critique or interpret Genesis outside of my own Christian context. Sure, I'd heard sermons and I'd read books on Genesis from, you know, Adventists and Evangelicals and Baptists and even Catholics, but I'd never heard it by a, what I could tell, uh, humanist, uh, Canadian psychologist, somebody who, you know, didn't go to church on Sundays and say his prayers at night, you know, somebody who was completely different. All I'd ever heard were the new atheists, you know, your Sam Harris's and your your Dawkins and your Hitchens uh, critique and, and interpret the Bible as like, it's so terrible. Like, who's this God who's just committing mass genocide everywhere he goes? You know, isn't that terrible? I never heard somebody outside of the Christian world or outside of the Jewish world talk about Genesis in a way that wasn't uh, just a complete flat out criticism or, or, or condemnation. And the way that he handled the subject matter um, was just so different to, to what I had experienced up until this point. And the fact that he was interpreting it through this psychological lens was also incredibly compelling for me. And you know, real talk, just, you know, right in the middle of this, I didn't understand a lot of what he'd said. You know, I, I'd done a counseling major in, in at Avondale uh, as part of my studies. I thought, hey, counseling would be a great addition to my um, theological training. So let's do that. And so I was introduced to Carl Rogers and Viktor Frankl and, you know, a lot of these these behavioral psychologists and, and theoretical psychologists, Jung and, and, and Freud and, you know, the the big guys. But there were some things there that I'd never ever encountered before because I hadn't I just hadn't dug deep enough into it. I, I'd never heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I, I'd have never heard of, of Dostoevsky, um, these these Russian um, 
you know, philosophers, social commentators. You know, I'd heard of, you know, a few of them, but I'd never heard of some of these incredible works that they had produced out of the Soviet Union. I'd never heard about some of the stuff that Nietzsche and Freud were were talking about. It was, it was, a lot of it was new to me and a lot of it was just completely, completely out of my, my, the realm of my understanding. And I didn't understand it, but there was something that kept on bringing me back. And it's, it's crazy because, you know, a lot of the time, and this is what I do, I don't know if you do this, but a lot of the time, if I don't understand something, it gets too heavy, I just switch off because I'm like, well, I, it's just not in my thing. It's just not my thing. I just, I can't get there. So I just, I just switch off, but I didn't do it with this. Um, Peterson, he just, he, he starts in Genesis chapter one, verse one, and he spends like six hours there. He, he introduces the idea of God and he talks about chaos and order. He talks about these Babylonian myths about Tiamat and, and Marduk and, and the primordial sort of forces of chaos versus order, which is ironically also the title, the subtitle of 12 Rules for Life, an antidote to chaos. And he spends a lot more time talking about uh, chaos and order in that book. So back to the biblical the biblical lectures because this is really i mean this is where i've spent the most time i've read the book but i've spent the most time in these biblical lectures so i didn't understand a lot of what was going on but it resonated with me in a way that i couldn't quite put into words and it wasn't that he was presenting new ideas about the factual or historical events in genesis again going back to that literalist interpretation he didn't really have much to add to that conversation but he, w- he went in a completely different direction, a direction which I'd never heard of before, the archetypal, mythical way of interpreting uh, Genesis. And it really just struck a chord with me in a way that, again, as I said, I couldn't quite understand, but it still it drew me in. He laid out Genesis in a way that I had never encountered before. Now, I should make a, a quick mention before I, I go on. Um, Peterson's approach to biblical and spiritual matters is really interesting um, because given that he's done so much study in Genesis and, and, and in the Bible in, in general, he doesn't just stay there. He, he, he did a whole lecture about the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is fascinating in and of itself. But it's understandable given his... Uh, affiliation or, you know, his association with the subject material that people would ask, well, are you a Christian? Are you a Jew? Are you, what are you? Do you believe in God? Do you not believe in God? Are you doing this merely as an academic exercise? Or is this something which, you know, you're taking on as religious belief? And it's so interesting because he's said many times in interviews and even during some lectures, how much he hates being asked that question, because for him, it's not as simple as, I believe in God or I don't believe in God. In fact, he actively avoids answering the question whenever he gets asked, which has led many traditional Christians to question whether he can be relied on as an authority about biblical or spiritual matters. Understandable. I totally get that. Um, But I just want to make one quick mention, and I'm not going to pretend to understand the intricacies of his approach, but... He even did a lecture recently in Sydney, which you can find on his podcasting, um, his podcast, 
where he analyzed his own hesitation to profess a belief in God. And he compared such a statement as more of a confirmation of behavior. See, for Peterson, belief in God isn't something which I can just intellectually assent to. Belief in God is more about the way that I live my life. The idea of God as a being with which we can have a personal relationship and through whom we can confess a set of doctrines and beliefs is kind of incompatible with the way that he sees the world. Remember, he's a behavioral psychologist. He's he's invested in this world that is so far out of the purview of many just regular ordinary Christians. So, for Peterson, the idea of God and belief in God isn't about whether I verbally assent, whether I tick the box, it's about how am I living in the world? Am I living as though there is ultimate being? And he kind of conflates the word God with the term being, capital B, B-E-I-N-G. And he refers to God and being sort of, they, he's, they're interchangeable, these two terms. And I, I, I really, that's interesting. I really quite like the way that he uses the term being as a way of um, describing and talking about God. I think it's really interesting because the way that he talks about it, it, it kind of blows up this idea of God. And I think that's that's quite interesting in that when we talk about God, a lot of the time we have our own preconceived notions about what he is and who he is and, and how he should act and you know, how he illustrates himself through the world. And the way that Peterson talks about it, he kind of rejects those orthodox Christian parameters because I don't think he wants to be tied down to, well, he's the guy who's a Christian and he talks about psychology, right? I don't think that's what he wants to be. I think he wants to be more than that. And I think you could argue in some ways that his rejection of these parameters makes his views incompatible with Christianity. But on the other hand, you could argue as well that his rejection of said parameters allows him to enlarge his and in turn our view of God or being and thereby taking us to places that we previously thought inaccessible. He refers to being as God and he refers to God as being. And whilst he talks about God as God and being as God and those two terms are kind of interchangeable, I think the way that he thinks about God is different to the way that most Christians think about God. He thinks about God more as an all-encompassing presence, as perhaps the instigator of creation or evolution, as he's an evolutionist. Uh, He's referred to that many times, and he's pretty open about that. Um, And that's not something that I personally am, am on board with, but I can look past that. The way that he talks about being is is far deeper, I think, because in one way, he does think about being as something that you can have a relationship, one thing that you can align yourself with. But on the other hand, I think he talks about being in the same way that C.S. Lewis talks about Aslan. I remember that famous line in the Chronicles of Narnia where um, one of the characters asks, you know, Aslan, is he safe? I think it's Lucy asking Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver says, oh no, he's not safe, but he's good. And I think that's how Peterson views being. He views being as something which is wild and something which is transcendent, but which is also something good. And he talks about this in many of his rules in 12 Rules for Life, how what 
the the point of life is to align yourself with being. In other words, align yourself with the good rhythm of the universe, that there is a fundamental good. And I think as Christians, we can agree with that, that there is a fundamental good about the universe with which we can align ourselves. All right, so back to the biblical lectures. I'm going to talk a little bit about this and then we're going to talk a little bit more about 12 rules for life and then we will wrap it up. And I want to just quickly make a mention because if you're at all interested in checking out the biblical lectures, I would very much recommend it. Uh, I would also hesitate and just tell you, be prepared to dedicate a lot of time to it. Um, Do it when you're driving, do it when you're working on something brainless that you don't need to concentrate for. That's how I did it. I think I got through his biblical lectures in about six months. That's about 30, 20, 30 hours worth of content. So I listened to them off and on for a very long time and eventually got through them. And then I went and listened to them again. So I've listened to his biblical lectures for, I think about 40, 40 hours, something like that, which is insane. But consider that's over a period of about two or three years. So, when he talks about the biblical lectures, he opens talking about this idea of God, and then he introduces us to this idea of chaos and order. And so, if you think about the way that Genesis opens, it opens with God hovering over the deep. Um, The Greek word is abyssos, the abyss, the the darkness. And he compares the biblical uh, creation narrative with the Babylonian creation narrative, which shares a few similarities, but differs in some key areas. Um, Tiamat, the god or goddess rather of chaos and the deep dark waters of, of um, yeah, essentially of chaos, the abyss. She's there in the beginning. And um, Marduk, who is this young god who, you know, claims ownership, claims leadership of over all the gods if he can defeat Tiamat. It's a long story. It's a complicated story. Um, he defeats Tiamat and he, he, he wrestles her to the ground and he kills her and he makes the earth and the heavens and everything like that out of her body. And so he compares this idea of chaos and order to, um, to, to Tiamat, to the Babylonian myth. And there are, of course, other myths in which chaos and order are intertwined. It's, it's what he views as an archetypal story. It's a mythical story, uh, but it's an archetypal story. And that's the point. The point is not whether, you know, God literally hovered across the deep and he called the, the water to, to, to be in order and he called the land to be in order and all this sort of stuff. What Peterson is concerned about is the archetypal stories that shape us on a psychological on a psychological level, both the um, the on the personal level and on the corporate level. So on the on the personal level, but also on the level of how we build our societies and how we build nations and how we have na- national identities and and things like that. That's what Jordan is is concerned about, and this idea of of chaos and order. Is, is really the, I would say, key idea uh, in, his, in his biblical lectures. And it's hard to say that because there are so many other huge ideas that uh, I don't have time to talk about today. But these ideas are just so incredible and just so deep that they really deserve their own podcast. So maybe in the future we'll talk about it, but I don't know. For now, Chaos and Order is the big one. And 
It's interesting how he talks about chaos and order. He doesn't talk about them as equal and opposite sort of um, enemies, even though they are enemies in some ways. What he talks about first is he talks about chaos and order on the mythical level, you know, with creation in Genesis. And he also talks about it in the Babylonian myth. But then he also talks about chaos and order in society, in the human heart and how humans are prone to creating chaos and how we are prone to, uh, in some ways, relinquishing responsibility so that it makes life easier for us in the short term, but also creates immense chaos in our world. And he talks about responsibility as being the catalyst for order, that God doesn't come down to earth and say, well, oh, everything's chaotic. Oh, let's just see how it all works out. No, God takes responsibility and he calls order out of chaos because order rests within chaos, but it, it it's, it's powerless. It's powerless until you call it out. And so he talks about how God in the beginning uses true, true words and truth to be able to call order out of chaos and that how that's essentially what we are called to do as well, to to look into, I guess, to to stride into chaos, to speak truth into that chaos, and then to wrest order out of it in the same way, in some ways, that Marduk kills Tiamat so that order can, can take place, or that same way that that. that St. George kills the dragon so that he can save the virgin and so that he can be a hero. Or the same way that Bard the Bowman kills Smaug in The Hobbit. He uses these archetypal stories. Um, Pinocchio, for instance, The Hobbit, of course. Uh, and examples from his life and from life around him. And so it's really difficult to kind of condense all these ideas into something that's substantive and something which you can kind of just talk about in a in the space of like under an hour. But this idea of order and chaos is as I said the the main the main driving point be- behind his a lot of his work, especially the biblical lectures and his 12 rules for life because as it the subtitle says it's an antidote to chaos. And his point isn't that chaos is bad necessarily, but that order and chaos work together and they basically are in this dance. In the same way that when a creative person comes in contact with a person who is not as creative, who's a little bit more cognitive, a lot of the time there is friction. There is a dance that takes place between values which are, you know, creative and um, experimental and and, and adventurous, uh, as well as values which are more solid, that are less creative, that are more about um, stability and building. And he uses these examples to illustrate the fact that too much chaos throws the world in disarray. It's anarchy. And that's where a lot of our dystopias come from. You know, I think of Mad Max and a lot of these these societies that we see, far future, apocalypse has happened and it's every man for himself. In fact, that's a that's a, a key story in the Bible. You know, the end of Judges, the author makes special mention that in those days, each man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's part of the problem, as we've talked about, that wisdom narrative that, 
you know, part of the fall happens because Adam and Eve, they do what is right in their own eyes, what is good to them. They take the fruit and they eat it because it appears to them to be good, not according to God, because God has already said it's not good. You shouldn't eat it. And he doesn't control them, but he allows them to make the decision. And because they make that decision based on what they see as good, they enter into chaos. On the other hand, you have the problem of too much order. Too much order also creates a different type of dystopia, that dystopia of control, the the high walls, the big brother controlling everything. He is always, always watching. And it's it's about behavior modification and it's the thought police. It's 1984, right? And it's, it's, it's this dystopia where... Um, you can't do anything without being controlled. All your thoughts and your feelings and, you know, who you are, your your uniqueness and your creativity is smashed to pieces and you're forced to just be an automaton like everybody else. And so what Peterson is trying to do throughout this whole thing is not to say that chaos is bad and we should do away with it or that order is bad and we should do away with that. He's saying that as beings who are on this journey of life, our our purpose is to find purpose. And he presents this idea of finding meaning in chaos and in order uh, through the, 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 the vehicle of nihilism, which he identifies as being one of the big um, problems with today's society, that more and more people are becoming nihilistic. And, and if you don't know what nihilism is, it's basically the doctrine that everything is meaningless that we are just animals, there is no God, there is no purpose, there is no rhyme or reason to life. Probably most famously um, illustrated by Nietzsche's uh, declaration that God is dead and we have killed him. And many people take Nietzsche's saying to be a triumph and it's not a triumph. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cry for help. It's a, it's a despairing um, shriek that God is dead and that we have killed him. It's not that we have literally climbed to heaven and killed God. But it's that society, in Nietzsche's view at least, has progressed to the point where its its need for God is gone. And in the place of God, Nietzsche wonders, what are we going to do? And, and Peterson looks to a lot of the socialist and left-leaning societies over the, at least the last 20, uh, 20th century um, for instance, communist Russia, communist China. And he looks at what that has wrought. The types of societies that have been created out of this idea that God is dead and we have killed him, that reason and 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 human effort, that the redistribution of political and, and material goods over all the people is that's the way forward. That's the way, you know, it's it's inequality. We have to eliminate inequality. We have to redistribute the the means of production to the people. And that's how we're going to ascend to utopia. And he looks at what has happened through fascism, through communism, the millions of dead bodies and the the complete annihilation of entire nations and how this search for meaning has driven people to commit incredible acts of genocide and hatred. And that through it all, really the answer isn't to manufacture meaning and purpose, but the, 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 the idea is to, to find meaning and purpose where it has always been. Uh, Peterson has a, a thought which he 
he shares all the time, it's that the Bible, at least the the Judeo-Christian worldview, has really been the thing which underpins uh, Western civilization. And that to abandon it is to abandon what makes Western civilization uh, truly great. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You only have to look at the the first century of the church to see how a small, you know, subcult of Judaism grew from being just a, a, a obscure sect with a prophet who lived and who died a violent criminal's death. It, it grew from this insignificant sect to a a world power, a superpower, and it has infected possibly the entire world in one way or another. That Christianity, Judeo-Christian values at least, um, have informed and created some of the values that we hold as being a priori today. Uh, values such as the individual is significant, that life is is precious, that you know every man's duty is to make sure that everybody is free and able to participate in society fairly. Like that's not a Roman view, that's not a Greek view, that's that's distinctly Christian. And so, as he looks at these ideas of nihilism versus meaning, he talks about how what we need to do in all this is not to try and find happiness, because that's often what we talk about, like find, just find happiness. The idea is that we need to find meaning. In fact, in 12 Rules for Life, he has a chapter, you know, completely dedicated to this. He says, pursue what is meaningful not what is expedient. And it's really interesting how he begins that chapter. He begins that chapter by saying, life is suffering. That's pretty clear. There is no more basic irrefutable truth. It's basically what God tells Adam and Eve immediately before he kicks them out of paradise. And then he talks about, you know, the the part where God says, hey, Eve, you're going to bear children and it's going to hurt. And, and Adam, you're going to have to work the land. It's going to be hard and you're going to get sweaty and your back's going to hurt and life is going to be tough for you. Life is suffering. And then he goes on and talks about uh, how the the proper response, he talks about Cain and Abel, how suffering can be met either with hatred and uh, reciprocity towards suffering or that you can meet suffering with dignity and the will to rise above it. And, and I know that this might seem a little bit rambly and this might seem a little bit um, like I'm barely scratching the surface. And the truth is I am. The truth is I, I, I cannot do justice to the theories and the ideas that Jordan Peterson puts forth in his books and his, his lectures. So my biggest um, encouragement to you, even if you listen to this stuff and you think this guy is full of rubbish, my encouragement is just to listen to a lecture, um, pick up his book. Have a read of it. Borrow it from your local library. Give it a go. Uh, Because here's the thing. As I said in the beginning, it wasn't really the beginning, but I, I said it a while ago. The idea, definition of a myth. What is a myth? It's a story that is true on every level except the literal. And here's the thing. Whether creation was created in six days... I don't know. Whether there was a literal worldwide flood, I don't know. Do I believe that those things happened? Yeah, sure. God could have done it. God could have created the, de- the world in six literal days. He also could have created the world in 
0.6 literal nanoseconds. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Was there literally a flood? Yeah, maybe. We don't know. My faith, though, does not rest on whether those things literally happened or not, as we talked before. My, my faith rests on the literal death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that he literally died, he literally rose from the dead, and that his followers believed it too. We can see that from history. But that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is the way that I am reading the Bible differently now to the, to the way that I used to. I can see now, and <laughs> it's so interesting, the way that I read the Bible through the archetypal mythical lens, because I no longer need to know that every story, every minor plot, whether Job really happened, right? Whether any of these things actually really happened, because what's more important to me now is the way that I see what the Bible is trying to communicate, the Bible writers are trying to communicate on a mythical archetypal level. Creation always kind of bored me. Yeah, God created the, de the, the world in six days. Great. Good. So interesting. Not. <laughs> that's just, that's, that's how I used to think. But now, when I understand the archetypal reasons, chaos and order. So when God moves on the waters, he's not just creating land. He's actually confronting uh, an archetype. He's confronting chaos. He is bringing chaos uh, into line and he's making order out of it. He's dividing the land. He's creating something beautiful. He is ordering the world according to what is good. And he calls it good. And that's amazing. And that is just so beautiful. And then he creates man and he, he gives man and he gives woman the, the, the idea, not the idea, but he gives them the responsibility to rule and to reign according to his wisdom. And I'm not just pulling from Jordan Peterson. I'm just, I'm pulling from a whole bunch of different sources when I think about this stuff now. The way that these stories come alive for me only happened when I stopped worrying myself whether they actually happened. And I know that's a really challenging thought for a lot of people because so many of us have been brought up in condition to believe that the most important thing is to make sure that it all actually happened because that is what we hang our hat on. But when I have shifted from not worrying about whether it actually happened or not to worrying about what the biblical writers are trying to say, perhaps what the Spirit of God is trying to say to me through these biblical stories, it's changed the way that I live my life. And I think that's what the Bible is supposed to do. The Bible isn't just some academic document that we can just study and then we get together on Sabbath school or Sunday school or in our small groups and, and debate about this and that and the facts. And that's, that's what we've concerned ourselves with so much over so long a period and I just think it's time that we started to let that go and again I know that's a really challenging thought for a lot of people because it's scary because it's like we're embarking on this journey into a, a whole new area a whole new world that we don't know about and that's what it's been like as I've been reading Peterson's work and as I've been reading the work of other scholars and it's this whole new world, which I was so unaware of before, but it's changed the way that I view the Bible. It hasn't changed my confidence in the Bible. In fact, in, in some ways, it's actually reinforced my confidence in the Bible. It's reinforced this idea that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is important, that it's significant, that 
maybe these things didn't happen or maybe they did happen. And even if they didn't happen, there's something there that the Bible still has to communicate. The biblical writers, they, they, they knew something that we didn't. And I think it's, it's important that we don't allow that to, um, to fade away. I think it's important that we keep that. I think it's important that we continue to read the Bible and to compare it to these archetypal stories to move forward, to find meaning in our lives. Um, and if you found what this discussion um, was all about, do you, if you found this helpful, um, I would, yeah, just recommend, check out Jordan Peterson's stuff. Check out his biblical lectures. Don't agree with everything that he says. I don't agree with everything he says. But there's a lot that he has to say, which I resonate with and that I find incredibly compelling. So tell me what you think. Um, I'd love to hear from you. What uh, person or body of work has influenced or changed the way that you read the Bible or the way that you think about your Christian faith? I'd really love to hear that. Um, This is one of the things which I think is so important that we openly discuss. And you can do that in the best way possible by going to our Facebook group once again. Um, the password is Poppy Gloria. In fact, there have been some people who have been giving us some passwords which are a little bit different. Um, some of you can't spell Poppy Gloria. That's okay. Uh, i just like to give a shout out to the one person who gave the password Oopsie Doopsie. That was super meta. I really enjoyed that personally. And I, um, I, I commend you. If you, can, uh, if you can come up with any other related meta passwords related to Poppy Gloria that uh, I get the reference to. That's that's totally awesome. Um, so next week, we are having an awesome interview with Caleb Isley uh, from Humans of Adventism. Can't wait for it. I know that it's going to be super sick. So uh, without further ado, thank you for listening. That is Jesse out. <laughs>